this week that we had as a family together in Florida had a similar occurrence. There were two things that were lost, and there was only one thing that was found. There was a great windstorm that blew up over one of the evenings that we were there. When we woke up in the morning, the wind was just gusting. The waves were crashing against the Gulf of Mexico shore. And I had made the mistake of placing my swimsuit out on the porch to dry. And I woke up in the morning, and I was, I don't know what, I was going to look for my swimsuit, and it was nowhere to be found. And I was pretty sure I'd left it on the porch. And sure enough, I never found that swimsuit. Uh, I actually went down to the parking lot that was below the place where we were staying, and I found a couple of items that were ours, also from the porch, but not my swimsuit. Um, that did hinder my ability to partake fully in the activities of Florida. I did promise you I did not adopt a more European attitude to the matter, and um, I just ended up for the last couple days staying out of the pool. Um, there was another far more significant thing that was lost when I was coming back from Florida. We were traveling yesterday with the, uh, the entire family. If you want to learn patience, travel with five children on an airplane ride for three and a half hours. It is a wonderfully sanctifying experience. Um, but in any event, as I was um, getting into the car, Abby and Kelvin graciously came to pick us up at the airport. And I was looking through, just making sure I had things, and I was going through my, my backpack, and I said, where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? And I had a, had a recollection that I'd placed it in my backpack, and I was searching through my backpack, and it was nowhere. And that, that sinking feeling, right? My wallet, where is it? And we're sitting there in our car right outside the, the, the uh, you know, arrival gate of the airport, and I'm starting to look through every pocket, pull things out. And Tabitha is sitting next to me, and she says, we need to go check the airplane. We need to get someone back there to check the airplane. And I'm kind of impatient. I don't want to take that step. And I say, no, we can, let me just keep on looking here. It's, it's somewhere around here. She says, no, I'm, I, let's go check. Let's go check. And so she takes off inside. Call me if you find it. But she was going. And so here I am pulling everything out of my backpack through every single pocket, thinking back. I'm thinking, did I leave it in, you know, at, at, the, at the security gate, in Flo at the security check-in point in Florida? And after a while, Tabitha merges with my wallet. The story is even more remarkable because Tabitha had remembered them saying they were going to turn the plane around and fly it right back to Florida. So she ran up there. There was no one at the security counter of the very budget airline that we flew back with the five uh, children. And, but there was a very kindly wheelchair attendant who said, oh, I'll go back and check for you. He goes back to the gate just as the gate is about to close. He manages to get back there, tell someone apparently about this predicament, and they went and looked and didn't find it. Until one other person said, wait, let me check. Apparently they said, let me check one more time and one more check, and they discovered my wallet before it flew back on the airplane to Punta Gorda, Florida. Now, there's one application from this story, which Tabitha would appreciate me giving to you. 
which is always listen to your wife's instincts. Okay, guys? That's, I, I could end the sermon, the mini, very mini sermon right here, always listen to your wife's instincts, and I'm very grateful that I listened to my wife's instincts. Actually, she didn't really let me listen to it. She just went, but nonetheless, it was a very good takeaway regardless. But the greater takeaway as I reflected on what was God's very great graciousness to me and great providence because if that wasn't, didn't happen, if, they, if that man wasn't kind enough to run back there and get that, I would be standing here with no idea where my wallet is. And all my attempts to get through to the security checkpoint at Punta Gorda Airport in Florida would have yielded no fruit, and I would have had no idea where my wallet was. That God was incredibly gracious. But as I thought, even as we were pulling away, and I remarked to my family, there was great joy in our car over a single wallet that had been found. And I turned and remarked to my kids, this is the joy that God has when one sinner repents and is restored to him. And that's why for just a few moments tonight, I want to reflect on Luke chapter 15 and verses 1 through 10 to bring all of us in what, as I suspect, has been a, in a common occurrence in a similar way in your life, the joy of something valuable, precious to you that has been lost and then found. And then as bring ourselves in to what is the heart, the character of God, and ask then ourselves some, I hope, penetrating questions on what that might look like for our own life. Now, I just want to start with these two parables that we often probably look at together. We're not going to get into the third parable that Jesus gives after verse 10, the most famous one, the prodigal son. Really, that parable, as we said, should be called the prodigal father because that's really at the heart of it. But notice here what I want to say, first of all, what is common to both of these stories, what is common to both of these parables. The parables are so simple, and yet in their own way they're so profound. What is the first one? Jesus is being confronted by Pharisees who are offended. The Pharisees, as we've been seeing in the book of Mark in our morning preaching series, were always looking to be offended. It was not easy. It was not, it was not hard for them to be offended at Jesus. But in this particular occasion, notice, we see in verse no, number 1 of chapter 15, then drew near unto him all the publicans, that's the tax collectors, and sinners for to hear him. Now, in the gospel, sometimes you hear that word, sinners. And you think, well, that's everyone. But not to the Jewish ear. To the Jewish ear, a sinner in this context was someone who was an open and notorious sinner. Now, we don't see who these ones here, but the kinds of people that would include were prostitutes. People who, like tax collectors, earned their money by fraud, by deceit, by cheating by stealing open and notorious people in the community. Now, if you were here, if Jesus were here on the corner of Park and Franklin, and you said the sinners in the community were flocking to hear him in the same way, if I were to say the open and notorious sinners in the community were flocking to him, you would probably have just a picture of who might be on that list. This is the idea in the Pharisee mind. Tax cheats, tax collectors, and very open and notorious sinners. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. They were muttering, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. You say, why is there such an offense? 
because we don't live in a Middle Eastern world. In a Middle Eastern world, to invite someone into your home or to eat a meal at their home is to accept them for who they are. It is, in a sense, to embrace or to identify or to associate with them in a way that to the Pharisee mind would mean you're contaminated, you're defiled. If you identify or associate with an open and notorious defiled person, you are sharing in their defilement. You can't go in the mud with the pigs and not get dirty. That was their view. And so that's where they are in this story. They're muttering, they're murmuring, Jesus, how can you claim to be a rabbi, a teacher? How can you claim to be from God if you're going down into the mud with the pigs? You're dirty. And Jesus speaks three parables to them. Now notice what is common to each of them. First, something is lost that seems insignificant. That's what's common. Notice, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find, until he find it? Verse 8, either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece out of the ten, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. So there's one out of a hundred that is lost and there's one out of ten that is lost. In a sense, you could look at it as being insignificant, but as we'll see, it is the furthest thing from insignificant to the person. There's something lost that may appear insignificant. There is something found after significant and sacrificial search. Notice verse five, verse 4. He leaves the ninety and nine in the wilderness and goes after that which is lost until he find it. He's going out into a place of danger, into a place of difficulty, into a, into a place of, of inconvenience until he find it. Same thing with the woman. She lights a candle and sweets the house and seeks diligently till she find it. This is real sacrificial work. And notice the third thing that's common. Something is lost, something is found, and something is celebrated. Notice. Verse 5, and when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. And what's the next word? Rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now notice verse 9. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Now, we won't look at it, but notice the prodigal son. What's the flashpoint of the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son comes home, and what does the dad do? He throws a party. He celebrates. He, he rejoices. And what's, what is the real application of the story to the Pharisee? They, they were like the older brother. They couldn't rejoice. They got mad. When Jesus was celebrating, rejoicing over sinners that were repenting, they couldn't get it. They couldn't come into the party. They couldn't enjoy what was going on. Something is lost. Something is found. Something is celebrated, but not just celebrated solo. Celebrated with others. Rejoice with me, the woman is saying. Rejoice with me, the shepherd is saying. Rejoice with me, the prodigal dad is saying. It's a group party. It is 
an occasion for joy. And notice this is not just common, what is common to both of these stories, but notice what is an aspect of God's character. Notice what he's saying here in verse 7. I say unto you that likewise, in the same way, just like this shepherd, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than, more than, ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Verse 10, likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Here's the first question. Whose joy is it? There's joy in heaven, and there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. Whose joy is it? It's God's joy. Notice he says joy in the presence of the angels. It's like God's face is radiating joy at one sinner that repents, and the angels are just partaking in the joy of heaven. There is joy in heaven. Do you remember what um, Jesus said in the parable of the man who received the five talents and the parable the, who received two talents and the man who received one talent? He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into what? The joy of thy Lord. Heaven is a place where God's joy radiates. And when one sinner repents, heaven lights up with the joy of Almighty God. And I want to stop right there to ask you, is that your view of God? That wherever across the world today, some sinner has turned to acknowledge their sinful condition before God and accept the forgiveness that only comes in His Son, God's heart rejoices like when I found my wallet. Like when you found what was precious to you after searching long. Like what this shepherd experienced when he found out in that wilderness the one sheep that had gone astray. When that woman swept her house from top to bottom until she finally found that one of ten coins that was lost. That is what God, can I say it? feels. That's what God feels. Now I, I stop to say that because it's so easy for us to have a corrupted view of what God is really like. A superficial reading of the Old Testament, like we have been going through the book of Numbers and we see these severe judgments that God calls upon the nations surrounding Israel and even the what seemed to be, to be modern ears, harsh discipline that he meets out on his own children. And we say, God's just up there looking to send a thunderbolt, a lightning strike on us. He's just, he's just itching to get mad at us. And we completely miss the heart of God. We completely miss the heart of God of one who sees what is lost, who is insignificant to the entire world, to the Pharisee, that prostitute, that was repenting was completely insignificant. It had, she had no value to God. There was a cause for the most wonderful party. Joy in heaven. To that tax cheat, that one who had made his money by fraud and deceit, who was the enemy of the Jewish people, to the Pharisee, they were nothing more than an inconvenience, a blot that needed to be obliterated. In fact, there's a Messianic Jewish commentator, Alfred Edersheim. 
he quotes one of the ancient rabbis, one of the ancient sources of Jewish thought. Listen to what he says. This is, he, this, he says this is a quote. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. I want you to listen to that. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Is that your view of God? I really want you to ask, is that your view? There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That was the Jewish idea. Now imagine when Jesus upsets that completely and he says, no, wait a second. There is joy before God when one of those sinners repents. That's who God is. We see this in the Old Testament, Zephaniah 3.17, speaking of a messianic age for God's people of Israel, says, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. He'll be singing joyful songs over you in his love and delight in you. Is that your view of God? And I say that as well because I wonder for how many of us we, we subconsciously adopt a view of God that's like the Pharisee. Who did the Pharisees think God rejoiced in? Them. Why? Because we're good. Because we're righteous. Because we do things your way. Because we're not like those sinners. That Pharisee who held himself up in the temple. God, I thank thee. Who was he thanking? He wasn't actually praising himself. God, look at how good. He was saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like him. It is you, God. You've made me righteous. You've made me just. And I'm not like him. And God says, don't you see that my delight is in those who repent more than those who need no repentance? Now, I want us to pause just for a moment there. One very common interpretation of this is Jesus is saying, those self-righteous Pharisees, I don't, God doesn't rejoice in them. Now, that's true. God doesn't rejoice in them. But I want you to see from the parable here, what were those other nine coins for that woman who had lost one? Were they in the fold? Were they in the possession of the woman? They were. They were hers. The 99 sheep that were still in the fold, were they still the shepherds? Yes, they weren't wandering off in the mountains. What is God saying? God is not saying he doesn't rejoice over your obedience. God is not saying he does not rejoice when you walk by the power of the Spirit of God to do what pleases him. He does rejoice over you like a father. But what does he say? He says, I rejoice more than that in the one sinner who repents. Do you know what that tells us about God's heart? God's heart ultimately above all is a restoring heart. It's a restoring heart. That's who God is at his nature. He, it is a redeeming heart. It is a drawing heart for those who are lost and he desires to find and to save. And I want to pause here for just one moment. If you are in a place here tonight where you know you need repentance, you know, you, you say, I'm a believer, or maybe you're not, wherever you are, but you say, I know that there are areas in my life that are not right before God, and I need to get right. Do you know that God, if you will come back to him tonight, he will not hold you at a stiff arm. There will be a party in his presence. He doesn't just say a sinner who repents to be saved. 
He says, one who returns to the fold. And if you're backslidden, if you're walking away from God in a particular area of life that you have not been willing to, or if there has been a, t a time recently where you have repented and turned back to him, there was joy in the presence of the angels of God when you returned to the fold. Let that sink in for what your view of God is. But there's one more point here. Not only what is common to both stories, not only what is an aspect of God's character, but third, let's ask ourselves what is, what is our concern in light of what we've read in these 10 verses. The first thing I want to ask us tonight is do we pursue his joy? Now consider what I'm asking there. If God's joy, his legitimate delight what he feels is when one sinner repents, do we pursue his joy? Do you know that's what love is? When you love someone, you pursue their joy. Spouses, do you want to express your love? Pursue the other's joy. Pursue the joy of your children or of your parents or of your church members. Pursue their joy. What do I do when I love God? I do what pleases him. I do what delights his heart. And so therefore, what do I do? I pursue sinners with him. I want to make him happy. I want to delight his heart. And I know that delighting his heart more than anything else is the redemption of a lost soul who repents. And so therefore, what do I do? I go looking for lost people. I want to make God pleased. I want to delight him. And so I seek them like he does. The Pharisee couldn't, they, they could not come into that with their view of God. It was Jesus, knowing the heart of God, who devoted himself to going and seeking lost people to be brought into the kingdom. Do you, do I, seek the joy of God in how I use my time and how I use my talents and how I use my treasure in this age? Here's the second question. Do we share his joy? Do we pursue his joy? Secondly, do we, do we share his joy? That is to say, is our great joy when someone repents? Is our great joy to see people come in to this church on a Sunday morning who are seeking to repent and embrace them with open arms? Are we willing to go out and not look at those who are open and notorious sinners as, as those who need to be distanced from or those who, 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 need, who will make us dirty if, if we're too close to them. Do we share the joy of God in the repentance of sinners? The Pharisees couldn't, but we must if we're going to know his heart. And here's the third point and the last one. Do we experience his joy? I want you to think about that for a minute. Do we experience his joy? You say, what do you mean by that? I mean this. God delights when people repent and he forgives them. I want you to stop there. Just think about that for a minute. God delights when he has the opportunity to forgive someone who has repented. Now, I ask you that because do you delight in being able to forgive someone who has wronged you? 
God delights in forgiving those who repent. Do you and I delight in forgiving those who have wronged us? It's one thing for someone to come who has wronged us, even maybe in a very grievous way, and we'll say, fine, I'll forgive you, but we're going to be kind of out here about it. We're going to kind of be at a stiff arm about it. I, I guess I will. It's another thing to reflect the character of God who has been more grievously offended than you and I ever have by an infinite degree. We have injured the character and nature of God in an infinitely more degree than I have ever been hurt or you have ever been hurt. You say, how do you know? Well, go back to the parable of Jesus. When there's the man who owes the master that great debt, a debt he could never pay, and then when he's forgiven, he goes out to the guy who owes him a comparative pittance, a comparatively very small amount, and takes him by the throat and starts, and starts choking him, if you will. That's God's view of the offenses that others have. Uh, that offense, uh, excuse me, offenses that others commit against us compared to the offenses that we commit against God. God delights in forgiving us when we repent. Are we able to stand on his side when others wrong us and harm us and sin against us? And when they humbly repent and seek forgiveness, do we delight in giving it to them? We can experience the joy of God when we stand on his side and say, God, ultimately this offense wasn't against me. It was ultimately against you. And if this person is getting right with you, that makes me more happy, more joyful than any wound of my own that I will hold against this person. Three questions. If God's great delight is in sinners who repent and give him the opportunity to forgive. Do I pursue his joy by seeking lost people to bring to the fold like Jesus? Do I share his joy in how I look at the sinners around me and desire their repentance? And finally, do I experience his joy by my willingness to forgive openly and humbly and with my own great joy in that repentance.